The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 14, and we're going to start this morning in verse 18. While you're turning there, let me say a brief prayer for our time. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to the truth from this book, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak through me, your instrument in the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you what this section is about, just as a brief refresher. Jesus has told his disciples that he is leaving them, and he now is in the upper room with them, and he is trying to comfort them. He is trying to alleviate their fears, and he has told them various things about the future in order that their souls would be comforted. And if you could look at these, uh, the first thing he said is he's leaving in verse 2, to prepare a place for them. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So that's the first way that he tries to comfort them. The second thing he says is that he is going to come back for them, that he is going to come again, and that's in verse three. He says, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. The third comfort that he gives them is in verse 12. They might be thinking, well, what about our ministry? What about all the work that we've done? How will this carry forth if Christ leaves us? Look at verse 12. He says, you will actually do greater works, not in terms of the the power of the works, but the scope of the works. They will bring the gospel to the entire earth. Verse 12 says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. The fourth comfort that he gives is regarding answered prayer, and that's in verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Remarkable promise. The fifth comfort that he gives is he said, I have a task for you. This is what you're going to be doing In the meantime, while I'm away, look at verse 15. These are the marching orders. You are going to obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then the sixth comfort is in verse 16, and that is the coming of the Holy Spirit, that if he goes, he will send another paraclete, a helper, an advocate. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, another helper, to be with you forever. And now we come this morning to one of the most remarkable truths in the Gospel of John, something that's so important for our own spiritual life, something that really is the very essence of Christianity. And this is really one of the most remarkable comforts that Christ could ever give us. And that is the reality of communion with God. 
the reality of knowing God. God created each and every one of us to know him. You think about the Garden of Eden and Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. Adam and Eve knew God. And when I say know God, I don't just mean they knew facts about God. They don't just know states and capitals. My kids do that. You know, I know the, the, the capital of Iowa is Des Moines. No, 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 no. He's not just talking about knowledge. He's talking about relationship. That's what he's speaking about. And because man sinned, what happened in the very beginning is that relationship, that knowledge of God was severed. And Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. And that relationship with God was broken. And what Jesus came to do is through his atonement for sin, he came to restore that relationship so that you could know God. Jot down these verses. This is such a, a remarkable verse. John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The reality of Christianity is a relationship at its very heart, and that is the most important thing that you know God in Christ, that you have a personal relationship with him. Do you have that relationship? Do you know him? Do you experience him? How you answer that question is the most important thing A.W. Tozer said about you. Do you know him? And Jesus says, look, th this will be the reality of the gospel, the reality of Christianity, is that we will have a relationship together through this person of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. What do you think about when you think about an orphan? You think about a destitute child that doesn't have a parent to guide them and protect them and somehow they've ended up in a, in a home where they're, they're cared for but they're essentially alone. And Jesus says, I will not leave you alone. That's what he's saying. I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, what he's talking about there is the day of Pentecost. You can read about it in Acts chapter two that Jesus ascends into heaven after the resurrection and he sends the Holy Spirit to the church on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus is saying, in the person of the Holy Spirit, I will come to you. Look at verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, that the Holy Spirit is with every Christian. Paul says that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, that all Christians are sealed with the Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of heaven. So every Christian is indwelt, is baptized, is sealed with the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that your body then is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that, that God the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you. The implication of that is that means that you are never alone. 
if you are a Christian. You are never alone. That no matter where you go in the world, no matter how difficult the circumstances that you face, no matter the trials, no matter the circumstances, you are never alone. I was thinking about the Apollo missions this week. I don't know why. I'm just into that sort of stuff. And I was thinking about Michael Collins. You remember Michael Collins? He's kind of the lost astronaut from Apollo 11. Everybody knows Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin. Those were the guys who went down to the moon. Michael Collins was the guy who stayed in the ship orbiting the moon for them to later dock. And Michael Collins, when, when he, he went around the room, I think it was like around the moon 13 times. And when you, when you go around the moon, every time he would lose radio contact with NASA for about 47 minutes. Because at that point, he was on the dark side of the moon, where the moon was between him and Earth. And I was thinking about that. If you're a Christian, and you're in that spaceship, and I don't know if Michael Collins is a born again believer or not, you're not alone. You're not alone. Remember what David says, Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I free, flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, if I go up into the stars, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand, hand shall hold me. I remember when I was checking into a new duty station in Japan, and uh, it was, it was kind of like that movie, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It was just flights and trains and buses and all sorts of things to get me to where I was supposed to be. And I remember I was riding a train from, uh, to, to Hiroshima, and, and the thought crossed my mind, I don't know a single person in this country. Not a single person. I don't know anybody. I got my sea bags right there. But I realized in that moment, I distinctly remember thinking this. Christ is with me. I'm not alone. In the person of the Holy Spirit, he's here. Isn't that what Jesus promised? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says, if you're a Christian, you are never alone because Christ through the Holy Spirit is with you. Isn't that amazing and remarkable? And so the key of the Christian life is to press into that relationship, to press into knowing Christ who is the full revelation of God. That is the most pivotal thing that you can dedicate your life to is this communion with Christ, this knowledge of Christ. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about in the remainder of chapter 14. I want you to look at verse 19. And what Jesus fleshes out here is the experience of this communion, this, the experience of this relationship. What is it like? What is it like to have a relationship with Christ and to know Christ? Look at verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. Talking about the crucifixion and the resurrection. In fact, the world won't see the Lord Jesus again until he comes in judgment. John says, Revelation 1-7, then every eye will see him. He says, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
you will see me. And here, when he says, you will see me, he's not talking about in the days after the resurrection and before the ascension. And before the ascension. He's talking about you will see Christ spiritually. You will see Christ in the soul through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important to think about. Stay with me here. It will not be a face-to-face scene. They will not see Christ anymore face-to-face. Nor will they see Christ in a vision. No, 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 no. The way that they will see Christ is through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit helps them them to recall the things about him. So what that means for us is this, is that the way that we see the Lord Jesus Christ is through the word of God, through the gospels, through the Old Testament where he's predicted and through the epistles where he's explained and through Revelation where John records that he's coming again. This is very important for us to think about as Christians living in an entertainment culture. I grew up watching movies like The Passion of the Christ and things like that. People watch TV shows that depict Christ. Not saying that that's sinful to do, but here's the the problem. Here's the issue, is that the Christ of the New Testament is the real Christ. And if you want to see the real Christ, you have to go to the book which the Holy Spirit inspired. When you watch The Passion of the Christ, that's a Jesus that Mel Gibson is mediating for you you, for you to understand. So now you're getting it secondhand. Does that make sense? If you want to see Christ truly, you have to go with with, with a spirit of humility to the word of God and say, God, the Holy Spirit, show me who Christ is. And I think, you know, you read the gospels, there's not a physical description of Christ, is there? There's not like, okay, his face was of an angular shape. He was about 5'8 in stat. No, no, no. You don't see any of that. It's really a faceless Christ. there's There's no physical depiction. And I think the reason for that is because the Holy Spirit, when you think about Christ, what he wants you to see is the radiant glory of God. You remember what John says in the first chapter, we beheld his glory, the glory of God. And so if you think about Christ and you think about Jim Caviezel, put that out of your mind. Or the guy on the the chosen, no. Think about the glory of Christ and try to see Christ as he is in the Gospels. Let me give you a quote from A.W. Pink. He says, quote, by the power of the Spirit, he makes his word so luminous that as we read it, he himself, Christ himself, seems to draw near. The whole biography of Jesus becomes in this way a precious reality. We see his form We hear his words. It is through the written word that the incarnate word manifests himself to the heart. If we are going to have reformation and revival again in this country, it is because Christians become desperate to see Christ again in the word of God. Where the word of God becomes central 
and seen Christ, and there is a desire to see him and to be transfixed by him. Now, that's the first reality of this experience, of this relationship. The second, this is so remarkable, is, and I put it in your notes, as the living Christ. And, and what Christ does, because he lives, he makes us live. That we have this life component in us. Look at verse 19. Look what Jesus says. Because I live, you also will live. Very simple statement, but remarkable reality. Because I live, you also will live. What's he saying? He's saying, because I will be resurrected from the dead, and I am spiritually alive, I will impart life to you. And at this point, I think it is very important that we insist on the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection is a historical reality. Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead. Everything hinges on that. It used to be that many people in the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, people said there's really no such thing as miracles. If you can't explain it with science, it didn't happen. And so people said, you know, uh, maybe Christ didn't really rise from the dead bodily, physically. Maybe it was just a spiritual event. Maybe his soul just came out, but his body really is somewhere over there in a tomb. And even theologians bought into this. When Karl Barth, I don't know if you've heard that, famous German theologian came to America, Karl F.H. Henry, who at the time was the editor of Christianity Today, met him and, and he said, Bart, I want to ask you a question. He says, do you believe in a physical resurrection of Christ? And Bart kind of looked at him. He said, who did you say you were? Carl Henry, editor of What's That Magazine? And, and Bart made a joke. He said, Christianity yesterday? And Henry looked at Bart and said, Christianity yesterday, today, and forever. Here, here is Henry's point in getting to that. Everything hinges on a physical, literal resurrection. And that is the impetus of the new life that Christ gives us. Now, Christ gives this new life to us in two stages. Stay with me right here. Two stages. The first is the regeneration of the heart, the new birth, that you experience the new life, and that's something that we experience now. The second stage is when he comes again, and that is the bodily resurrection. So the first event precedes the second. And Jesus, throughout his ministry, promised this new life. Remember to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. You must have this new life, John 3, 5, of water and the Spirit. John eleven twenty five. 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And I talk to Christians all the time, and this is the, the standard reality of every born-again Christian is this experience of this new life. That, that is the genuine distinction between false Christianity and true Christianity. True Christianity is if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you're not a Christian. Because this is such a vibrant reality this new life in Christ, that you are a new person. And the whole point of this, the whole point of being a new person, a new creation, 
is so that you can know Christ. Christ puts his life into you so that you can know him. It's not just a new life to be like, yeah, I'm a new person. Praise be to God, I'm a new person. I don't, I, my, my, now my heart's for the Lord. That's not, that's not the end game. The end game of being a new person is so that you can have the relationship. That's, that's the point. Jot down this verse, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live Christ's life now. And the point is that I might know him. And the way that Christ works this out, he gives us a new life. And then third is he comes to indwell us. He comes to indwell us. So there's seeing Christ, there's living with Christ, and then there's the indwelling Christ. Look at verse 20. He says, in that day, on that day of Pentecost, when I, when I come in the power of the Holy Spirit, you will know that I am in the Father, in you and me, and I in you. He says, you will know that I have gone to the Father. Now look at that first phrase. You will know that I am in the Father. Jesus is talking about his relationship with God the Father, that they are one, that they are in unity. And he says, that right there is a picture of what my relationship is to you. Just as I am one with the Father, I will be in you and you will be in me. It's a picture of this intimacy that we have with Christ, this union that we have this we have with Christ. How intimate is the Son with the Father? He is infinitely intimate. And so we are connected and have this organic relationship to Christ. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. I am the shepherd, you are the sheep, I am the head, you are the body. So here's the question. Here's the question. We're supposed to see Christ, we're born again to commune with Christ. We have Christ's life, life in us, and we are to press into this relationship. As a Christian, this must be your highest priority, to see Christ, to commune with Christ. It's not, I want to see Christ and I want to do A, B, and C with my life. That's not it. It's not I want to see Christ and I want to have some sort of happiness from my wealth. No, 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 no. The way to this vibrant relationship with Christ is very simple. It's simply saying, I want to see Christ and nothing else. The moment that you put the and there, is when you complicate things. Christianity is very simple, friends. Very simple. Listen to what Paul says. Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says as dung in order that I might gain Christ. If you want to press on to maturity as a Christian, you have to have this mindset that it's Christ and nothing else. That it's Christ and nothing else. That I will put everything, even the good things, 
I will put them to the side in order that I might gain Christ. And Paul says, next to Christ, even the good things I count as rubbish compared to knowing him. When you have that mindset, it's amazing the intimacy that you begin to feel with Christ, of how you begin to know Christ. Let me ask you, do you have that mindset in 2024? I want to know him. And I will not allow anything else in the way of that. That is how you press into the experience. Then you begin to see Christ. You, you, the, the, the life of Christ that is his is now yours, and you begin to commune with Christ. All right, so that's the experience of this relationship. Here's the evidence of it. Here is the evidence of the communion in verse 21. How do you know if you have it? What's the evidence of it? Look at verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Just stunning verse, remarkable verse, really a, a, a repetition of verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That word keep, we talked about that. It means to guard. It means to hold. If your house is burning, what do you go in and grab? What do you protect? That's the meaning of the word. And Jesus says, look, the true Christian desires to guard and keep my commands. And notice the phrase, he it is who loves me. You could actually flip verse 21 where you could say, the one who loves me is the one who has my commandments and keeps them. It's interchangeable because it's cause and effect. The one who loves Christ, the one who communes with Christ is the one who keeps his commandments. J.B. Phillips paraphrased verse 21, quote, every man who knows my commandments and obeys them is the man who really loves me. Think about this. This is so practical and so simple. How do you know if you have a relationship with Christ? How do you know if you commune with him? It's not some mystical answer. It's not, oh, well, I spend six hours every night in the dark just thinking about Christ. That's not what he says. The evidence of communion is not some vow of poverty or life of chastity. You don't have to go live in a commune to have some sort of communion with Christ or as the desert fathers did, they you know, went off to some cave in the desert. You don't have to do any of those things. The evidence of communion with Christ is simply obedience to his word. Look over at the next chapter, John 15, verse 10. This is, we're going to get into this, what it means to abide in Christ, to abide in him as the branches. But look at what Jesus says. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the evidence is really simple about whether or not you have this communion is do you desire to obey him and do you keep his commandments? That's it. I remember when I was over in Israel, we went on this Israel trip and I ran into a, a preacher, a pastor down in, he, he pastored a church down in Dallas. I, I, I grew up going to listen to him named Todd Wagner and, and we met up one night and we were just talking in the lobby of the hotel 
And as preachers inevitably do, we start talking about the Bible. And we started talking about John chapter 15, you know, and this whole thing about the vine and the branches and, and abiding in Christ. And I'll never forget what Todd said. He said, you know, Christians, they want to go to the mystical. You know, oh, what does it mean to abide? You know, do, 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 I, do I do these things? Is it just, you know, some sort of transcendental meditation? What is it? And Todd said, it's, it's so simple. It's obedience to his commands. That's what it means to abide. And so the obedience is the evidence that you really have this communion with him. And get this, it's the obedience that keeps you in communion with him. It's the obedience that keeps you in communion with him. You are never closer to Christ than when you are obeying him. The degree to which you dig into the obedience, you find your intimacy with him growing, growing deeper and deeper. This is the evidence that you have this relationship. Look at the second part of verse 21. Jesus says, and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. He's not talking about salvation here. He's talking about fellowship. He said, I will manifest myself to him. I will reveal myself to him more and more and more and more. Whereas you obey this communion with Christ, it's like you experience the, the, the grace like waves washing over you. And oftentimes it comes when you make a stand, when things are really hard and you say, you know what, I'm gonna obey Christ regardless that the party crowd's doing this or regardless of that everybody in the company's doing that or everybody in the family's saying this. I am going to obey Christ. You experience that wave of grace and mercy where Christ comes and comforts you, where Christ manifests himself to you. Now, that being said, the flip side is also true. The flip side is also true, and we need to say this, and we need to think about this, that if you are living a life of disobedience and habitual sin, you will not experience that same intimacy and that same fellowship. You wonder, why don't I feel it? Why does it not seem like my Christianity is vibrant? Why doesn't I don't feel I don't really experience this communion with Christ. It could be that you are hiding something in your life, which Paul says in Ephesians 4 is quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, the Christian, he says, you don't join your body to a prostitute because at that point you are joining Christ with a prostitute, may it never be. You do not want to walk in habitual sin because at that point you are walking in disfellowship with him. Again, I'm not talking about salvation here. This, believers do this all the time. You're, you're saved by grace. You're saved by his work alone. What I'm talking about right now is your intimacy with Christ. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you Revelation 3.20 where Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That verse is about intimacy. That verse is to, the, to a church. That verse is about believers. Jesus is saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, if any Christian hears my voice, opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. 
Is that you right now? Where you have some sort of hidden sin on the side? You know, as long as my wife doesn't find out, find out about it, it's, it's okay. No, God sees, and that breaks the fellowship. That breaks the fellowship. And Jesus is saying, hello, open the door. Repent, confess your sin, 1 John 1, 9. That is also to the Christian. If anyone conf- uh, confesses his sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's to the Christian. Confess your sin, repent of your sin, re-engage with communion with Christ, and then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And as you begin to bear fruit, as you begin to obey, then that feeling of intimacy begins to grow more and more and more and more and more. Now, one of his disciples, the other Judas, has a question. Look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot. You know, how unfortunate of that is that for the other disciple, Judas? You know, that the rest of your life, there's a disclaimer after your name. You know, I, my name's Judas. I'm not that Judas, right? Uh, man, that had to have been hard. But, you know, by God's grace, he, he endured, I'm sure. Um, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us? How will you reveal yourself to us and not to the world? So he's, he's saying, how will this work? You know, how will the world not see you? How will we see, how will we see you? Jesus answered him, verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Notice this time he doesn't use the word commandments. He simply says, my word. He boils it all down into one thing. It all stands or falls together, what Jesus said. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And, and look at this language of fellowship. Look at this language of communion. He says, my father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will abide with him. We will make our home with him. Isn't that what you want for your life? to abide with Christ, to know Christ, to have that fellowship with him, if if that's what you want, then make a resolution. You know, Jonathan Edwards made the resolutions. You have to do this. If you want to have the communion with Christ, make the resolution. I will keep his word no matter what. Though none go with me, I still will follow. You have to live with that resolution, Jesus is saying. And then you have the intimacy. Then you have that communion. Look at the the opposite, the contrary. The antithesis, verse 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. There it is. How do you know the the true Christian from the, the false? If they don't keep Christ's words, they don't really love him. And Jesus says, the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. My word is one with the Father. The Father and he are one. That there's uh, true Christianity is a revelation of God the Father through the person of God the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's one message. And Christ is saying, that's, that's how you know. You know, you have all these Jews at the time, they claimed to know God. They claimed to have a relationship with God. They claim all sorts of things. But he says, if they don't keep my words, and my words are the words of the Father, 
then they don't have the communion. They don't have the, the Holy Spirit. Think about that today. Are there a lot of people who wear the Christian banner, who wave, who wave that high? There are. But if they don't keep Christ's word, are they a Christian? They don't keep Christ's sexual ethic. Are they a Christian? Yeah, I, I believe in Christ, but I'm living this way right now because I feel like I have the freedom to do it, and I'll be forgiven. Is that true Christianity? No, it is not. The true Christian desires to keep the, his word. Does that mean that they're perfect? It's not perfection. It's not perfection, but it's a life of continual repentance, and it's a life of saying, Lord, I'm endeavoring, I am trying to keep your word, and I know I'm not perfect, but I'm confessing my sin, I'm repenting, and I'm going in this direction of Christ-likeness. That is true Christianity, and then when you do that, you experience the intimacy. Verse 25, Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. Praise be to God. Now, the third thing I want you to see about this communion is found in verse 26, and that is the edifice of communion. I needed another E word there, okay? But what I mean by edifice, I mean the foundation. What is the basis of this relationship, the, the basis of our communion? So, so far we've talked about the experience of communion with Christ, that it's seeing Christ and having this relationship with him. We've talked about the evidence of this relationship, that it's obedience, that it's a life of keeping his word. Now we're talking about the foundation. What is it built upon? What is the edifice of this communion? Look at verse 26. But the helper, the paraclete, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Notice the Trinity right there. You've got to see the doctrine of the Trinity, the unity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father sends the Holy Spirit in whose name? In Christ's name. All three are equal in essence in terms of the Godhead, yet each has a different role in redemption in our salvation. The Father sends the Spirit, the, the Son procures the Spirit through his life and work. Second observation we need to see. Look what the Holy Spirit will do. He will teach you, Jesus says, all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this verse is directly applicable to the apostles, not directly ap applicable to us. He's saying to the apostles, look, after my death, after my resurrection and ascension, what the Holy Spirit will do is the Holy Spirit will come to you and he will help you remember the things that I said during my ministry. He will help you remember the miracles. You know, he will help you remember that time when Peter got out of the boat and was walking and then he stopped trusting and started sinking into the water. The Holy Spirit will come and help you remember those things. And then when you go and write the gospels, in the epistles, he will help you record exactly what I want you to record. That's what Jesus is saying. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying, will help you basically put together the New Testament. He will help you recall the things that God wants you to recall. And that's a comfort to us. Because as you read the Gospels, what that means is that there's not a single story that's missing that was supposed to be there. It's all there. Everything that God wants you to know about Christ is recorded in the Gospels and the Epistles and in Revelation. It's all right here. Not one detail more, not one detail less. 
Now, second application, we looked at last week, does the Holy Spirit help illuminate the Scriptures for the Christian? Yes, He does. As you read what the apostles recorded, the Holy Spirit helps you understand what the Holy Spirit meant when He wrote the New Testament through the apostles. The Holy Spirit helps us, not giving new revelation, but helps us in interpreting the revelation that the apostles recorded. Here's the key takeaway, though, is what Jesus is saying is that there's a bedrock of truth that the Holy Spirit will impart to you. And this bedrock of truth is what Christianity is built on, what the relationship is built on. Remember earlier I was talking about the resurrection. It has to be a physical resurrection, a a literal resurrection. The new life in Christ is built on that reality. You can't compromise that. And that needs to be said because what happened in America in the 19th and the early 20th century is a movement called theological liberalism. And theological liberalism kept the same terms, but they changed the definitions. They changed the definitions, and they redefined the truth. And when they did that, they robbed Christianity of its power. And there was a gentleman named J. Gresham Machen, and he was a professor up in uh, Philadelphia at Princeton Seminary. He wrote a famous book in the 1920s called Christianity and Liberalism. And what Machen said is that when you stop believing in the truth of Christianity, these supernatural realities, in the deity of Christ, in the literal resurrection, in the inerrancy of Scripture, when you deny these, even if you claim the name of Christ, you're actually practicing a different religion. It's no longer Christianity. It's Christianized paganism. It's a completely different religion altogether. So the truth is the bedrock and the ground of our experience. That's why all Christians, all all born-again Christians, going back for the past 2,000 years, they can affirm the Apostles' Creed. They can affirm it all because the Holy Spirit keeps building your life on that truth. Does that mean that every person that subscribes to the truth of Christianity is a Christian? No. No. The demons believe and shudder. Lots of people claim the name of Christ and believe the truth, but you you can't not believe the truth and be a Christian, right? But you can't be a Christian without believing the truth. You, You have to believe the truth in order to be a Christian, and that is the foundation of what the experience is. And if, if you believe, for example, that God is a she and that all roads go to heaven, you might claim the name of Yahweh, but you're not worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. It's a different God. It's pagan. So, so the truth has to be there. And this, this is so important in this day and age. As people claim the name of Christ without the foundation of the truth. And, and that's why it is, very, it is loving to insist on the truth. You know, people in a, in a postmodern society say, my truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. The loving thing to do is insist on the truth. Say, no, no, no. If you don't have this, you don't have the relationship. 
you don't have the truth of who Christ is, you don't have the, the real McCoy of Christianity. So that's the edifice of communion. The, the foundation of it is the truth. And then fourth and finally, this is its effect in our life. The effect of communion in verse 27. So we've looked at the experience of it. We've looked at the evidence of it, the edifice the foundation, and then fourth and finally, this is the effect. And this is so wonderful. This is so just joyful to, to look at these verses and to see what the effect that God does in our lives through this communion that we have with Christ. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. What I think Jesus is saying here, look at that first phrase in verse 27. Underline that first phrase, peace I leave with you. I think what Jesus is talking about here is objective peace. That if you trust in Christ and his atoning death on the cross, that you experience by faith the reality, objectively speaking, of peace with God. That's Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. If you are a Christian, you are at peace with God. It doesn't matter how you feel. That's what I mean when I say it's objective. How you feel about it doesn't change it. If you're a Christian, you have peace with God. It's a fact. How you feel about facts doesn't change the fact. That's the first phrase. It's the, Jesus saying, when, when I go, I'm leaving you with this objective reality that you have peace with God. And notice the second phrase. My peace I leave with you. Or my peace I give to you. This is a second type of peace. This is a subjective type of peace. This is a peace that you experience. This is a peace that you feel. This is a peace that that is a, a uh, subjective reality for you. Jesus says, notice the personal pronoun, it's my peace, my peace. When Jesus walked on the earth, he walked in peace. What does he mean? Well, Jesus walked with complete standing and confidence of where he stood with God. Second, Jesus walked with complete confidence and peace in his convictions. He, know, he knew the truth. He knew what he believed. Jesus walked, third, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And fourth, Jesus walked in the experience and the knowledge of God's love for him. And what Jesus is saying here is that when I leave, I will give you that feeling of peace that you will know where you are with God, that you are his child, that you will have the truth and you will have the confidence of your convictions just as I have, that you will have the Holy Spirit as I have the Holy Spirit, and that you will walk in the experience of God's love. Jesus says, I'm giving you this peace when I leave. And this is something that the world cannot give to you. The world cannot provide you this peace. Think about what people are after. This is really what people are chasing after. People are looking for this peace in the soul, and they would do anything to try to get it. 
People think that maybe it could come from being famous, maybe being an influencer on social media. If I was popular or famous or was in a Hollywood movie or won a championship, then people would think I was really special and I would have peace in my heart. Think that does it? Everybody that's ever achieved something, you know, you read their memoirs or their or their or watch their their biopic, they will say, you know, I got to the top and I realized there was nothing there. There's nothing there. That feeling of peace doesn't come from being successful. People are on this search, this never-ending quest for truth. They go from one self-help book to the next. They cannot find it. They're on a quest for love and they're looking for that in their spouse or their kids or some other type of relationship but they can't find that peace in the heart because nobody can give you the type of love that only God designed for you to have from him. So people are on this quest for peace, to have this peace with God, and when they can't find it, where do they go? They go to drugs and alcohol and to depression medication. I mean, America is more medicated than it ever has been before. America is more intoxicated than it ever has been before. Why is there you know, this whole drug e- epidemic with fentanyl? Well, you know, w- w- why are people doing this? People don't have peace. And they're looking everywhere in the world to find it. And they're willing to take risk with their life in order to, to try to get some sort of numbness from the pain. And what Jesus is saying is you can have this peace and you can have the experience of this peace but you have to press into this. You have to think about this reality of what I'm giving to you. Look at the second part of verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That word afraid means cowardly, to, to, to tremble in fear at what, what's happening in the world. Jesus says you must endeavor to do this. Remember we talked about resolutions. You have to endeavor to remember these realities and to walk in this peace and to not let your heart be troubled. Paul says, Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. In the peace of God, this is this experience of peace, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That, that you'll experience this peace in the soul so this week, there will be times you will face a trial, you will face a situation, or you get up in the morning, you're just, you're, your mind's thinking about maybe a meeting that you have, whatever it is. Remember what Jesus is saying here. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Christ in his grace will give you that peace that you need in the soul and you will be sustained, and you will walk through it. And it's the peace that only Christ can give. The world cannot give it to you, no matter how far you look. This peace is brought about by Christ going to the cross, and then the resurrection, the the tomb, and ascending into heaven. Look at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. So he's repeating what he said earlier, that he will come to them at Pentecost. And he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. 
He says, if you love me truly, you would know that I am one with the Father, and so you would rejoice that I'm going back to the Father. And then he says, for the Father is greater than I. That doesn't mean that, they're, that Christ is inferior to the Father in worth or in essence. Christ is equal to the Father in essence, but in Christ's role as mediator, he submitted himself to the Father's will. He was obedient to the Father. So in that way, he's saying the Father is greater than I. Verse 29, he says, I've told you this before it takes place, so when it does take place, you may believe. This will increase your faith. I'm telling you what's going to happen, and when it happens, you will, you will remember what I said. And then he says, verse 30, that he is about to do battle with Satan to achieve this. Look at verse 30. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, who is Satan. He has no claim on me. Satan will not be able to take me down. He has no claim on me. Jesus Christ will be victorious over Satan at the cross. At the cross, he takes away Satan's accusation against the Christian. But he's saying, look, there's no more time for us to really talk. Jesus will talk to his disciples, as we'll see, on the way to the Mount of Olives. And then at, at that point, it's game time. At that point, he will be arrested in Gethsemane. He'll be thrown into a pit. He'll stand trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, before uh, Caiaphas. He'll go before Pilate and then Herod and then Pilate, and then he'll be crucified. These are the last words that he essentially has with them. Verse 31, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Uh, when you look at Christ's life, there's not one false note. There's not one moment where you can say, oh, he was disobedient there, or oh, he, he, he missed it right there. There's not one place where you can say that. All of Christ's life is perfectly righteous and perfectly in line with the Father's will. And through this, Christ is able to impart peace to us, that we walk in this peace, and it's all provided to us by Christ. It's a peace that we don't generate. It's not a peace that you, that you work yourself up to. It's a work that, it's, it's a peace that's given to you as a gift from Christ that he earned. So j just in, in summing this up, think about it. What's Christ's peace? My peace I give to you. The certainty of where he stands with God. The certainty of of your convictions, that, you, that what you believe about the world is true, praise be to God, that you believe the reality of things, that you have the, the, the reality, the person of the Holy Spirit with you, that, that you commune with God forever and ever, and that you walk in his love, and you press deeper into his love as you obey. As you experience that, the peace of Christ rolls over you, again and again and again and again and again and again. That is why Christians die well. That is why Christians die well. I've hear, I've hear, I hear stories, Hollywood stars, as, as they go into hospice, of crying and screaming and agony and just complete despondency because they don't know what's on the other side. 
They don't know. They've been on this journey for truth, and it's led them to nowhere. They don't have that peace. My wife's grandma, Frances McKay, godly woman, godly woman. We went and visited her uh, on the way back from South Carolina at Thanksgiving, stopped by the little Baptist Center, Bethay, down in, in Florence, South Carolina. And uh, in December, December 27th, in, in, in the wee hours of the morning, the Lord took her. The Lord took her. They came in five in the morning, and she was gone. And you know what? The nurses said she had a smile on her face. She had a smile on her face. As a Christian, when you think about your future, and you think about facing death, you think about all the things that could or could not happen, you have that peace. God puts that smile on your face. I know, I know whom I have believed, and nothing, not the devil himself, can change it. My peace I give to you. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would walk in that peace. We pray that we would know that peace, and that we would know this communion of knowing Christ that we would experience this, that we would desire this above everything else, that this would be our one desire, that we would put everything away except for knowing Christ Jesus, that the evidence of knowing Christ would be displayed in our life, that we would obey you, that we would keep your words, and Lord, that the truth would ground our religious experience, that we would cling to the truth, that we would hold to the truth, and that the truth would be the anchor of our souls. And fourth and finally, I pray for each and every person here who claims the name of Christ, that they would know the peace of Christ, and that the peace of Christ would comfort their hearts in every situation that they face. Lord, may we know your peace, your precious peace that you bought for us on Calvary, and may we walk in it. In Christ's beloved name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.